Well, this morning, um, we're going to be taking on a story, and uh, I want to kind of just start right off the bat by getting into it because uh, it covers a lot of different um, content as we talk about the story. But I want to start in 2 Samuel 11, which is where we'll be. So if you have your Bibles, you can get there. Um, Your leader's guides have them, or your discussion guides have those as well. I'll be using mine this morning. Um, We're going to be looking at... uh, David, and you're not going to like David after today. Um, you're probably not going to think much of him. Um, I, I really, uh, this chapter makes me really second guess a lot of um, a man after God's own heart and how he responds. But um, the truth is, I think if any of us uh, had our lives painted out in front of us in Scripture, uh, that uh, many of us maybe wouldn't fare as well. Um, but uh, at least some of us would say, well, at least I didn't do what David did. Uh, but at the same time, I think we're all going to see how susceptible we are to these things. And so first thing I want to make note of, and this is just kind of uh, get it off the plate, and this is just a literary thing I want you to make a note of in your, in your Bibles. It's amazing how 2 Samuel 11 uh, is a unique chapter in the book of 2 Samuel because it almost slows down. Um, it, it, it's like you went at a rapid pace to get to this section of Second Samuel. And the chapters, even as you read them, are very different. If you were to kind of examine chapters 1 uh, all the way up to 11, it's written very differently. And then you get to chapter 11, and it's almost like the narrator is kind of like, we're going to slow this down, and you're going to experience every part of the story. And so it slows ways down. It's told from the view from an outsider as a narrator. So the author of Second Samuel is writing and telling us from the outside what's happening. It's very very detailed, one you could read and picture everything that's happening. And so this morning, let me just kind of give you the layout, and then we're going to dive into this amazing text today. Today, we're going to see the full effect of sin. Um, We're going to see the worst of David. Many, as I said earlier, may change their impression of David today because nothing about this story is flattering about David. Um, It gives us the raw image of who David is. And this story is probably one that few um, in this, well, it's probably a story that many in this room have heard. So I think if you grew up in church or around church, you probably heard two stories about David, right? Uh, One was Goliath, right? And you all knew that one. And the other one's Bathsheba, right? How many have heard the story of Bathsheba before? Just raising hands around. Pretty, pretty, pretty common, right? If you know any two stories, these are the two that kind of get lumped together. And I find it interesting that we know a lot of his greatest victory and we know a lot of his greatest failure. Um, and since many of us have heard this story before, many of us have probably heard different versions of how this text is expounded this morning. Let me just say that I do not desire, <laughs> I do not desire to pull something brand new out of the text, okay? It's, it's not my job to come in and be like, oh, I didn't know that about the story. That, that's not the point. The point is that simply we are going to respond to the gospel and see that the gospel hasn't changed from the time of David till now. Uh, I want us to get the big picture of the story, and I want us to see what the author's intent is, including this story and how it fits into the rest of the Bible. Good? Okay. All right, so let's start from one verse from the New Testament, and I really feel like this is going to set the tone for this chapter as well. So let me set this one uh, New Testament verse that gives us the big picture of this passage. James 1, 14 to 15. If you were actually with us through the series of James, we covered this as well. But I think this kind of typifies the entire chapter. But each person is tempted... When he is lured and enticed by his own desires, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. This graphic is going to get us through the entire passage this morning, 
And, and this idea of temptation that is born in sin and eventually gives birth to death is what we're going to see pretty dramatically throughout the story this morning. There's a pattern that unfolds in the life of David. This is a pattern that unfolds for each of us. We can all look at that scenario and say, yeah, I'm exactly with you. It's a pattern that is as old as Adam and Eve. Um, as we talk about David, I would challenge you to think back to the garden in Genesis 3, and the pattern is very, very similar. Satan knows that he doesn't have to mess with the plan or the formula. He knows the truth, and the, the truth is that what took down Adam in the fall, what took down Eve at the fall, is the same thing that takes down David. It's the same thing that can take down your pastor, and it's the same thing that can take you down as well. He's not very creative. He just runs the same play over and over again. And all of this formula that we're going to see this morning transcends, and this is just unique. I find this very interesting. If you're to put this formula out there, this formula transcends culture, time, age, race, gender. Isn't that crazy? it's, It's basically this thing of if I were to go back in time in the life of David and I would give the progression of James of sin and tempted and and watch the formula grow, David would be like, I hear you. I completely understand what you're talking about. Completely different culture, completely different part of the country, completely different mindsets, completely different uh, worldviews, and yet we can talk about the same formula. I could take this formula down to Mexico, which we were just in, and I could talk about this formula, and I did, with those who were down there, and it transcended a Mexican culture, American culture, race, gender. You bring this topic of formula up to anybody in the world in 2019, and it would be the same exact discussion you would have in the time of David. Isn't that crazy? We think of like things that are always new and changing, and yet we forget that the pattern, the formula of sin doesn't change. We could have the exact same conversation with David as we had today. And I know that may be just geeking me out, but I just find that very, very intriguing that God doesn't change. That what was true of David is true of us today, and it transcends every culture, race, gender, time, even um, anything you can imagine. So anyway, sorry, just amazed by that. Satan realizes this formula he's going to run in David's life is the same one he can play, he can do all to us every single day. It would be the same as if, um, in, in football, it's as if you, the playbook for the other team was simply, we're going to run option left every single play, and you'd get beat 114 to 0. <laughs> it's like the same play gets getting run and run and run, and yet you can't stop it. It's the same thing with our lives and sin. This play gets run again and again and again. Uh, FIFA World Cup, the finals today, pretty excited about that myself. Uh, it's the same in soccer. We tell the, the players all the time, the little kids, we say, hey, guess what is, here, here's a true statement about soccer. The ball is always faster than the player. So passing is a big thing, right? If you watch the FIFA World Cup, passing, the settling, the basics, the ball is always going to be faster than the player. You can't disagree with that. And yet, even knowing all those familiar truths in sports and knowing the familiar truth of our sin, the fact is the play gets run again and again and again and again in our lives, and we still fall through the same formula. Okay, so what's the formula? What are we talking about today? What do you mean formula, sin, pattern? Let's dive into the story this morning. So let's start in 2 Samuel. We're going to start in verse 1 and 2. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. Now, Joab, remember, is the uh, guy who's the commander of his armies, chief head 
of all the armies he's got, sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rebah, and David remained in Jerusalem. Now, they went after the Amorites because the Amorites, if you look at a couple Ammonites, if you look at a chapter earlier, uh, they did some really crazy stuff, and one of the worst things they did uh, is after the battle, they actually took the dude's beards and they shaved half of their beard off, and they gave him this loincloth that exposed everything, uh, and they sent them back to David saying, we conquered you. And to which if I were to come back and this thing was like half shaven, I'd be like, it'd be a bad day. I'd be weeping and crying. It'd be humiliating. I don't think I could show myself in public. That was kind of the deal, right? And it was just kind of the utter humiliation. And they just really took it to David and his, and his troops. So David says, mm, that ain't going to happen. So David sends this whole thing and all these things are happening. But as these things are happening, we find that in the spring of the year, the times when kings go to war, David sends Joab. So David sends them and he's not even there. Interesting that it says in the spring of the year, right? So again, this is meant to slow us down. It's a narrative. It's meant to kind of give you the impression of spring, right? It's the first 60 degree day that you've seen since the snow and the negative 20s. It's beautiful outside. The birds are going crazy. The grass is starting to grow. Things are starting to bloom. It's just that kind of year where we all kind of come alive. In Ohio, we all kind of emerge from our homes and we all like, you know, the sun. And it's that kind of thing. We all start coming out in the spring. And this is kind of the thing that's happening a day. It's a beautiful time of year, and the the narrator's setting us up. Verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman he saw was very beautiful. Highlight the word very. It's interesting. It's a rarely used word in the Old Testament, but it's used here. Very beautiful. So a couple things we need to know. First off, uh, the first part of sin as it continues to grow in us is we see right? There's, there's a temptation. There's a look. There's a, there's a drawing of our attention. There, there's a thing of just seeing what is in front of us, and the temptation is there. A couple of things you need to know about David. One, it's springtime. It's, it's that time of year where, you know, you've seen it all over nature. I'm not going to go into it, but, you know, the birds are kind of going crazy. Oh, look, they're fighting. Not really. Um, and it's that kind of, everything's just kind of being aroused and that whole thing. And it says, and it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. Now get this. This is the equivalent of David slept in till like mid-afternoon, right? So this is that not getting off the couch kind of thing. This is like he's getting off of his bed. This is the, the idea that he's kind of, I got nothing in the world going on. All the battles are not in my mind. And he sleeps in till late afternoon and he gets up off the couch and he starts to walk around the roof of his house. And uh, there's probably one thing on his mind even in, at that point, but he's idle. He's not needing to, to, to worry about anything. And he's just kind of let himself kind of fall into his own successes, if you would. Now, he sees this beautiful woman, and he sees something that is very attractive. Now, go back to Genesis chapter 3, right? Adam and Eve, there's trees all over the place, and there's this fruit and this forbidden tree in the garden, and all of a sudden they see the fruit, and they're like, I want that fruit. Of all the fruit and all the garden and all the things they could have, they said, yeah, 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 that's great, but I want that one. And whatever fruit they could want, the tree is spotted, the one that's off limits, and they say, that's what I want. David could have had anything he wanted as king. The dude already messed up his life by having X amount of wives and concubines and the whole thing, but he wanted something new and he wanted Bathsheba. He wanted what he saw in front of him. So the first thing is we see, okay? That's the first part. Now we get into the second part. The transgression is not just that we see, but then the, 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 the escalation or the growth or the maturity of sin, if you would, is now going into I want, In verse 3, and David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, 
Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers, messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness, and then she returned to her house. This is verse 3 and 4, obviously. But 3, he says, I, I want it. There's, there's a difference between seeing something and acknowledging its beauty and being tempted by it. There's another thing of saying, I want it. I, I desire to have that. That which is not mine, I desire to have it. He wanted something new. He wanted something he didn't already have. And the desire then became amplified. And, and let me just say, in, in this passage, uh, there's something about the, the age of David at this point. There's something about the success of David at this point. He's reached kind of the pinnacle of his career. We talked about that. He's kind of reached the height of everything he's wanted to accomplish in life. He's there. And he's at that age where he kind of wants things that are new and shiny that that aren't what he always had. And it's kind of the age that I am. I feel like at this age, there's a time in my life where there's so many guys in ministry that are just jacking up their lives right and left at this stage in life. There's something about this age where, I don't know, you just fall into the routine, you fall into the things that are always there, the things that are always comfortable, and I, I'm, I'm good. And, but there's something about now that has a real potential to jack up our lives. And this is the time in life that so many make stupid choices. I, I actually had a conversation down in, in Mexico with uh, the leader of Shoulder to Shoulder, John Reeser. We were talking one afternoon, evening, I think, and, and uh, I just said, you know, you ever get to that spot in your life where you just feel like, God, please, my prayer is, God, please don't let me do anything stupid. <laughs> don't, don't let me buy that thing. Don't let me put us in debt. Don't let me, you know, go after the things that I really want versus need. Don't let me make a stupid decision. And, and it was funny because as soon as I said it, John's like, Amen. I am so with you right now. He says, there's something about this stage of life. There's something about the stage of David where it's just like, please, God, please don't let me do something stupid that would just wreck everything that you've built. And David, unfortunately, wasn't praying it, and many people aren't praying it. But my personal prayer is that in the midst of busy schedules and raising families and personal prayer life and everything else is just, I pray that at this age, that I, I pray continually, God, don't let me run to something stupid. Don't let me tarnish your name and your reputation. Don't let me ruin my family. Don't let me ruin the church. And don't let me look at something that I just want and, 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 and ruin everything in the process. You see, Eve wanted the fruit. Uh, Adam wanted the fruit. There's the want and a desire there. And then from that want came the next step. And this is 2 Samuel chapter 11, uh, verse 4, we just read. So David sent his messengers and took her, and she came to him, lay with her. And then he returned her to her house. And here's the thing. You've heard a lot of takes on this. You've probably heard a lot of pastors share a lot of different takes on this. And some kind of say, was it Bathsheba? Was it not? Uh, was she just kind of in the wrong place? Was she kind of flirting and, and putting herself out there? Uh, let me just say, from my personal standpoint, and this is debatable, I know you can kind of go round and round about this, but from my standpoint, I don't think this is on her. I think it'd be foolish to put this on her. I think this would be uh, something that would kind of say, no, it kind of gets David off the hook a little bit, and I don't want to do that. Because this is ultimately David. This is David being dumb. This is David not thinking of anybody else but himself. This is David taking what he wanted. And I think that he could have had anybody, 
And yet for some reason he desires, I want her, and he takes her. Even at the warning of one who said, right? I love this. This guy isn't even mentioned in verse 3, but one who said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah? Don't you realize this is, a, this is a married woman that you're going after? And Uriah is a guy that's one of his inner circle, like he's part of the inner 30 of warriors that he has. We've learned about that later. And yet he still takes it. And again, I've heard sermons preached that Bathsheba should have been more modest. Um, I, I don't think that's what the author had in mind here. I, I think that the fruit from the tree was just that. It was fruit. This is on the king. This is the one who decides, who lives and dies as king. This is God's chosen king. This is David. And in the words of uh, one of the authors that my uh, daughter and, and wife are reading, Jen Wilkin, uh, she says this, evil kings take. Plain and simple. Evil kings take what they want. And that's ultimately what David did. I see what I want and I'm going to take it and I don't care who cares. I don't care what else happens. I just, evil kings take. Plain and simple, men, evil men take. Evil, selfish men take what they want without thought of others. Stupid men blame the fruit. Stupid men blame God. Stupid men don't take accountability. Godly men take accountability. Godly men say, you know what? This is on me. This is not on them. This is not on the temptation. This is on me. At the end of the day, I'm the one. I'm responsible because I wanted something that was not mine and I took it. And I didn't care who got hurt in the process. And let me just tell you guys from the up front, God sees this as plain and simple evil. You're going to see this at the very end. David didn't see it as evil. He just saw it as something he wanted and he took. But God sees this as evil. David, you're going to watch the progression, goes crazy because he allows sin to to take and take and take. Because here's what I know and you know about sin. Sin is never, ever satisfied with one. Isn't that true? Sin is never satisfied with the first thing it gets. It always wants more. It is never, ever satisfied. Sin will always take, and stupid men will always fall for it. He begins in verse 5. Now that he's taken it, now he has it. He has it. What is, what is it? Verse 5. And the woman conceived, and she said and told David, I'm pregnant. Great. He took what he wanted. He took it without thought of anything else, and now she's pregnant. He didn't care who else got him, but he didn't care what else happened. He only wanted for himself, and this is what happened. He has it. I go through with the sin, you and I, we go through with the sin. I have what I've been craving, and we get what we want, and then you know the story. At the end of giving in to any sin, no matter what your sin is, you give in to it. And it feels so disgusting on the other side. And you're like, how did I, why did I, how did I get here? Why do I hate myself for having what I wanted so badly? And this is where the enemy knows you and knows me and kicks it up a notch. Here's the beauty of your enemy. Because as soon as you have it, as soon as you go after that sin and you take it and you say it's mine, this is where the enemy kicks up a notch and this is where he earns his bonus. This is where he hits his stride. He is the father of lies, the accuser of the brethren, and he does what he does best and he starts bringing every accusation against you imaginable. You know this. 
You fall for the temptation, you give in to the sin, and he comes at you with even more accusations. And you think it's sometimes God because you feel like, oh, I should feel guilty about it. Yes, you should. But then there's ultimately this thing where it just doesn't stop. And he's like, you're a failure, you're a rejection. God couldn't ever forgive you of this. Are you kidding me? You're a Christian and you do these things? What is wrong with you? You are never going to make it. You are never, and when you're never and always pretty sure you can claim that as the part of the thing of saying the enemy is speaking these accusations against you. The father of lies is coming at you. It's the most diabolical, perfect uh, trap you can ever fall into because one, he gets you to do what you don't want to do, Romans chapter 7. But then he also comes at you at the end and says, see, I knew, you were, I knew you'd do it. Why would you, why would you even do that? It's, it, it, it's just this worst scenario, right? They lead you to the sin and then he says, why would you, what, what, you're gross. Why would you ever do that? What is wrong with you? It's, it's mastery. He's been doing it for years. Years and years and years. Here's the problem. David didn't get to this, what's wrong with you part. He took what he wanted, and then these other emotions came into play. Let me read verses 6 to 16. So David sent word to Joab. This is the commander of his army. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. That's horrible. That is absolutely jerk move. Right? I just had an affair with your wife. He brings him home, has him in his presence, and is like, how's it going, man? How's life? You doing all right? Can I get you anything? How's the battle? Going okay out there for you? Everything's good? Completely shady. Completely wrong. First thing he does is just small talk with the guy. Right? How's it going? How's the war going? Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. We're going to talk about that in a second. And Uriah went out to the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. So go back to your house, clean yourself up. There's a wash your feet. It's kind of a weird term, right? You're kind of like, what is wash your feet? Well, there's a whole Hebrew way of, I can't, uh, okay. Um, Go clean yourself up, not your feet. Okay. So um, go get ready. Go, go hang out with your wife. Have a great night. Here's a present. I'm not sure what the present was, but I guarantee you it wasn't just chocolates, okay? Uh, I, 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 I want you to go home, enjoy being home, man. Enjoy all of it, wink, wink, of being home. That's what he's doing to this guy. Go home. and been a long time out there with all these dudes. Go home. It's going to be great. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? His plan's failing. Uriah said to David, the ark of Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. (laughs) Don't you hate it? When you really screw up, and you're trying to hide it, and the person you've offended is more Christian than you are, 
And they start claiming Bible verses and how much they love you and appreciate your friendship and, and how much you're just the best and, and how Jesus is growing both of you. And man, isn't this awesome? David's just thinking, oh my word, this guy, this guy's not going to stop. So Uriah said, David, then David said to Uriah, remain here today and also tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in the presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. The guy is not going to do what David wants him to do. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by hand of Uriah. In this letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Now, here's the spiral that David gets into that we all get into as well with our sin. And that is this. After we take it, after we have it, and we see what it is, it's disgusting. Back it up. After we uh, have what we have, we feel the guilt, the anger, the shame, and the hiding, right? This is all of the emotions that are happening in this 6 to 16 chunk, right? He starts with kind of guilt. He starts with the idea of, I shouldn't have, but I'll just kind of work with it. And then he kind of just kind of plays around with the idea of feeling guilty. And then it turns into like, full-blown uncomfortable shame of this guy's trusting God more than I am. And then from shame, it turns to just flat-out anger. He can't get him drunk. He can't send him home. He can't blame this on somebody else. And yet then the anger turns into this crazy thing of actually killing him. To which the question has to be asked this morning, and I don't know if you've ever asked this about this passage, why do you need to kill him? (laughs) I mean, think rationally just for a second, which he's not. Why do you need to kill the dude? You're the king. Nobody's going to put the two together. Nobody's going to think, oh, wow, she's pregnant. He must be David. Nobody's going to do that. Nobody's going to make that leap. Maybe the servant who talked to him, but nobody else is going to make that leap. He could have anybody he wanted. He could make this go away. Why on earth does he need to kill the guy? And the only explanation I have for you is that sin spirals and spirals and spirals and spirals. And I think, if I'm not alone in this, we all do some really stupid stuff when we follow the pattern of sin. We take, we want, we have it, and then we just kind of live in our shame and our guilt. We don't want to admit anything. We don't want to come clean. And in the midst of that not coming clean, it just builds and intensifies until finally we're like, oh my gosh, I've, I've got to do something, even if it's irrational. And David does something completely irrational. He could have sent her home and nobody would have known. He could have been free and clear. He wants more. He wants it all. And as we go back to from the beginning, selfish kings take. And when you're focused on your sin and your desire, here's what I know about you and I know about me and I know about David. It happened here. You will blow through every stop sign God puts in your way. You know that. I know that. Left in our guilt, anger, shame, and hiding, we're going to blow through every single stop sign God gives us. And you've been there. I've been there. God's like, just stop, just stop, just stop. Let me give you a couple stop signs that happened in the life of David just through this passage here. Verse 3 was the first stop sign. Somebody said she's married. That's a big stop sign. That's a big indicator. Stop. Don't go there. Verse 6, he meets with the husband and just kind of talks about how's life. Second stop sign should have been some guilt there, should have been some remorse, should have been a, 
hey, we need to talk. There should have been some openness and transparency. He blew through that stop sign. Probably felt a lot uncomfortable with this Uriah guy. Blew through that. Verses 8 to 11. Present from the king, wash your feet. Uriah sleeps outside. Blows through that stop sign. And instead of stopping, he puts on the gas and he steps on the gas and goes through another one. Verses 12 to 13, we get him drunk. That's a problem, right? It's a sin to cause somebody to get drunk. That's, a, that's an issue. He's now gone from sin, 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 bringing others into sin, causing Uriah to sin, and all these things are happening, and he sends him home. He didn't go home. That's the, other, that's the fourth stop sign. The fifth stop sign, and probably the worst one, is he sends him away with his own death sentence. This is horrible. Of all the stop signs he's blown through to get to this point, he doesn't blink. He literally sends the guy to battle with his death certificate in an envelope. Here, take this to your commander. Uriah doesn't know it, but he's carrying his death sentence to the battlefield with him. What a jerk move. What, what, an, what a selfish selfish thing to do. Don't, don't just think David. If he's King David, he can do it. Think of the reality and the humanity here. The guy just sent him to his own death, carrying his own death sentence. That's raw. That's ridiculous. That is sin multiplied. That is sin at its worst. That is sin at its extreme point. And it's the last point, and that's death, Right? We know that we see, we want, we take, we have it. There's guilt, the anger. Lastly, there's just plain out death. And sin kills everything it touches. Everything. It's why we live in a broken world. It's why David was able to just easily hand him the envelope. Hey, take this to battle. I'll see you later. Have a great time. Knowing full well that his orders are going to be obeyed. 16 to 27. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there would be valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. David has spiraled out of control, and he's finally back in the circle again. He sees, he wants him taken out, he takes, he takes Uriah's life, and it's ultimately ending in Uriah's death. Then Joab, this is 18 to 21, Joab has some blackmail here going on. This is great. This should be a mini-series. You know how Joab's got blackmail on David? Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, hey, just make sure when you go back and tell David, let him know. Uh, when you have finished telling him the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Okay, and again, jerk move, right? You're the one that ordered the death squad, and now you're kind of like, dude, why did you get him so close to the thing? I... That, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you? If he, he basically, Joab's like, if this guy turns on me, because he will, if this king turns on me, I'm going to blackmail him. He says, if you go, he says, why did you go to the city? He says, did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Je- Jerubest? Did a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Which is all true. Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. Now, this is blackmail at its finest. This is Bible giving you kind of some background. He's basically like, if he asks me why we're so close to the wall, all you need to tell him, Uriah's dead. Because that's what David wanted all along. And Joab knew it. And so Joab's like, if he comes back on me, I'm coming back with the truth. You killed him on purpose. This is not on me. This is on you. 
which is all part of the story. So then the messenger went and told David all that Joab had said to him, sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and cast us out against in the field, but he drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, this is crazy. Do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours, now one, now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. Oh, and encourage him. Are you kidding? No big deal. Battle happens, man. This isn't evil. This is no big thing. The Bible, the narrator is trying to get us to see the juxtaposition between David, this earthly king, and God, the eternal king. This is not a small deal. This is not a minor issue. This is not a, eh, that happens. Go back, you're doing great. Keep killing more people for me. The blackmail is in his pocket, but sin ultimately is what's here. Sin is ultimately what's being shown to us. Sin, when fully grown, brings death. Everything sin touches dies. Everything including Uriah, unfortunately, the casualty of David's sin. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband, and when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And here's the key of all chapter 11 right here. If you want to highlight and circle any verse of chapter 11, this is it. But the, key, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God saw this as evil. David saw it as, eh, no big deal. The same is true in David's life as true in creation. Genesis chapter 2, 16 to 17. And the Lord commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day you eat it, you shall die. From the very beginning, God knew that sin, when it touches something, dies. Every time sin enters the picture, death is soon to follow. It's just a matter of when. And we have the potential to cut that process off somewhere along the way. But if we don't, we realize that the end is always going to be death. Everything sin touches dies. Look at this world around you. And we think of all the things happening and cancer and, and, and all the wars and all the injustice and all these things that are happening. And everybody's like, why is this happening? Why are we not just good people? The reality is why all this happens is because everything is touched by sin in this world. And everything sin touches dies. So I grieve over the loss of friends and loved ones who have had to suffer at the hands of cancer and sickness and die. But that's all because of sin in this world. And I think you can kind of think, well, no, that's just the way our bodies are. No, we were made to be eternal. And we will be with Jesus one day, forever, clean, pure, living with him. But ultimately, while we're here, sin, everything sin touches, dies. Romans 5, 12 to 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Everything sin touches dies. So what are we to do? If everything we touch, everything that is sinful dies, what do we do? Here's the truth of this whole progress in James. Here's the reality. You cannot muscle your way through it. You can't just discipline your way through it. 
I've seen so many guys that are like, well, if I just keep it to myself and I just handle the sin, I'll just discipline it with God. Me and him are going to be good. I don't need to tell anybody else about it. We're just going to be fine. My sin's my sin. I'm just going to deal with it. I'm going to muscle my way. I'm going to get the right devotion. I'm going to get the right app on my phone. I'm going to power my way through this sin. It's not going to be an issue. It's not going to be an issue. I'm going to knock it out because I can discipline myself into just about anything. I'm a disciplined person. I can do it. You can't. You can't discipline your way out of sin. You can't ignore it and hope it goes away. That's the other option we have. David was like, maybe it'll just go away. Maybe if I just kind of get rid of all the, 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 the evidence, it'll just go away. You can't ignore sin and hope it goes away. You can't do it on your own. Sin has already touched everything from the fall. And the truth of the matter is, without Jesus, you are already dead. The moment you came into this earth, you were dead. And here's what I know about you, and I know about our community, and I know about those who maybe even here this morning who have not put their faith in Jesus we are dead. And here's the thing you know about dead people. Dead people don't make any choices. They can't. They're in a grave. They're, you know, worm food. It, it just doesn't happen. They're not a voting registry. Well, maybe they are. That's a whole other issue. <laughs> they're, not, they're not able to... I didn't mean that. Um, they, did not, they are not able to choose. Dead people can't raise kids. Dead people can't do anything. And yet you look around your neighbors who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and you're like, well, they're doing a pretty good job. They're making a pretty good income. They got a boat. I don't have a boat. They're on the lake this weekend. I'm not on the lake this weekend. I'm here in my house, in this pitiful job. That's what I got. That's me. You're telling me they're dead? Yes, they're dead. And the grace of Jesus touches even them to draw them to repentance, to draw them to the reality that they are dead. Everything sin touches is dead. And yes, they may be succeeding. And yes, they may look like they have it better. But the grace that Jesus tells us that the grace is drawing them back from the dead into life. Death is sin. Jesus is the victor. Jesus is what conquers death. Throw the verse up real quick for me as we kind of finish out. And then we're going to sing a song together as we, as we close out. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty four b Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Right? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, and abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Everything sin touches dies. So Jesus came into the world to break the power of sin and thus break the power of death. Does that make sense? So as he came, died, died in our place on the cross, he took the power of sin and canceled it and says, I'm power, more powerful than any sin you'll ever face. He then says, if that's not enough, I'm also more powerful than physical death. Because I'm going to raise my physical body back to life. Only God does that. And then he says, and if that's not enough, I've not only beat sin, I've beat physical life, I'm going to beat eternal and spiritual life as well, and I'm going to make you a brand new creation in me. Isn't that crazy? The the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, just, just think about this, the moment you put your faith in, I know I'm going long, the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, Do you realize every sin you're ever going to commit from here into eternity, every sin, every thought, everything has already been beaten in Jesus? Do you realize that the moment you accepted Jesus Christ, 
He reminded you, you are not a physical being. You are an eternal one, and you will be eternally with me in heaven. And then after all of that, he says, I'm going to give you a brand new life. I'm going to raise you to a brand new eternal life with me in eternity. Not because you're that good, but because I'm that good. Not because you're just some pitiful little earthly king named David who's a jacked up, screwed up guy in this passage. But because we have a king who's still reigning and still over us and still on the throne and still says, I beat it then, I'll beat it now. I'll take sin out then and I can take it out now. You gotta come to the king and deal with it so that you can be made alive in him. Only Jesus this morning. All eyes on Jesus. Our king, our defeater of death our bringer of life. If you get nothing else out of this passage, I hope you understand that this is not, this is about David, yes. But this is ultimately about a better king who came to offer us eternal life. We're gonna sing a song as we close. And I I, I love this because I said, I said, Rich, can we just, can we end with this idea that God, Jesus has beaten death that he's beaten sin. And I don't know what your sin is this morning. I don't know what it is you wrestle with on a daily basis. I've got a few. You've got a few. We all know what they are in our own minds. We know. Here's the reality. Jesus has beaten all of them and has grace in all of them. Don't go through the downward spiral of guilt, shame, anger, seclusion, isolation, not dealing with our sin. Be honest, be transparent, and allow Christ to remind you of the fact this morning. He has beaten death. And because of that, we are new. That's why, and I didn't mean to do this, but that is why our our slogan is that we, we love our neighbors to life. Because our neighbors who don't know Christ are dead. And we don't want to just love them to death. We want to love them to life. And I pray that's true for us, that we love one another well, that we bring them to Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, as we close out this morning, I pray that um, you would use the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to remind us of this amazing truth. God, that as we sing out these words together, that um, they would be proclamations that we would make Father, if those in this room, they need to ask for forgiveness of sins, I pray they would do it to the ones they've offended, to the ones that they've let down, to the ones that they've sinned against. They may just become clean and be honest. For those, God, who maybe have been on the other side and they, they know what it means to be free, this song will be a reminder of our freedom in you. May we rejoice, all eyes on Jesus, all eyes to you this morning, the only true king who offers us life. God, thank you so much for the freedom you bring. God, thank you so much for conquering death. God, thank you so much for freeing us from the power of sin in our own lives. I pray this week we would walk in freedom. God, if there are things we need to confess or things we need to get right, we would do so. But God, ultimately, we would turn everything back to you and say, it's you. It's our freedom. It's our life is in you. May we walk in that this week. It's in your powerful name we pray. Amen. Thanks. Have a great week.